This is Crossroads, the Get Religion podcast. I thank God for everyone that's been involved, and I want to thank all of you, but I want you to know that at this point I'm stepping down. I told Gordon that he will be uh, taking over as host, but I also have said, um, I, I will, in case I get a revelation from the Lord, I'm going to call you and I'll come in as a, yes. as, as whatever it takes. That's Pat Robertson announcing his retirement on October 1st from the Christian Broadcasting Network's 700 Club. Well, he's founder of that broadcasting network. He's founder of universities, author of numerous books. He ran for president, but for the media, more often than not, he's the poster boy for white conservative evangelicalism. Why is that? Greetings and welcome to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Terry is senior fellow at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, welcome back. Glad to be here. In terms of the history, what do you think Pat Robertson will be remembered for most? Oh, of course, stupid comments that made massive headlines, because I think that's the way the, the press has framed him for several decades now, and that's what will come out of his career in terms of the viewpoints of the New York Times and National Public Radio, et cetera, and I think that's what will work its way into history. You know, he'll be, all the famous quotes will come back out about him steering hurricanes and God-threatening cities that passed gay rights laws with damnation and floods, and I mean, all of that stuff is what he'll be remembered for. The, the question to me is, is that actually where the man had the greatest impact on American religion and on American life? And I would argue that it's not. In fact, I would argue that hidden in many of the profiles of him is a crucial fact about the man and his actual impact. Over and over and over, if you read the coverage of his announcement and whatever else, you're going to read about what a powerful evangelical leader he was. Oh, and by the way, I would challenge the terms televangelist in the sense that I don't think Pat Robertson ever did evangelism. You know, as the term is usually defined, I have fought many a war in newsrooms that we should not call him a televangelist. We should call him a religious broadcaster because I, I think that's really what he was. He was a talk show host and he was a genius to have decided that he could carry out and do whatever he wanted in the format of Larry King or some other talk show host. But back to the other issue, you're going to hear him openly called an evangelical. I noted that out of some of the reports I read, the Washington Post, in a very short story about his announcement of his retirement, they called him an evangelical, but then later they correctly stressed that perhaps the most important thing about this man was the degree to which he mainstreamed Pentecostal Christianity and some of the unique doctrines of Pentecostalism, which from a historic perspective, and even in some ways a doctrinal sense of the word, Pentecostalism is different than evangelicalism. I also think that this, this made people miss the degree to which his work and career in the Pentecostal world was what brought him into more contact 
with African-American and Latino Christians than many of the other major Anglo powers in the world of the religious right. This was a man that from the beginning was was comfortable with African-Americans and Latinos and other people that he was meeting through the Assemblies of God and through the Charismatic Renewal Movement. So I think of him primarily as a breakthrough into American culture of the world of Pentecostalism and charismatic life and helped make some of its themes popular with many Americans or even half of America. Among those would be, you know, prophecy, and he, he's known for some of his wild prophecies. People can miss the fact that he was talking openly about prophecies. So now one of the big stories of the Trump era is the rise of the new Pentecostal prophets and the ones who have kind of taken the place of Pat Robertson in terms of relevancy with millions and millions of people who know their work not through cable TV, but through the Internet and through social media and everything else. And those were the folks, the sons and daughters or disciples of Pat Robertson, those were the folks who made it into the Trump Oval Office and for better and for worse played a major role there. So I see him more as a Pentecostal pioneer, not so much a funny, strange, bizarre provider of headlines that, quite frankly, the media loved to play up. Let's talk about that relationship that he had with the media. I mean, in addition to the fact that he was part of it, strictly speaking, broadly speaking, you point out that he was a he was the media's poster boy for white mm-hmm. conservative evangelicalism, although you also point out that they really never dug into that to see if that characterization of him was true. Was true. You can also say that his actual power in the world of evangelical charismatic life kind of vanished or began to weaken before the media noted it. And and you say, well, Mattingly, that's an awful strange thing to say. Well, I'm thinking not so much of what I think about the situation, but what the George Bush campaign thought of the situation in 2000, when later we found out that they worked very hard to get people like Pat Robertson and Jerry Falwell kind of out of the headlines and off the air in terms of talking about their campaign. And instead, they moved to images of Bush with a new era of leaders, primarily someone like Rick Warren. Even at the time of 1995 to 2005, who was actually having the greater impact on American life, uh, Rick Warren or Pat Robertson, in terms of books, in terms of connections to powerful people, and in terms of the growth of their ministry, both in America and around the world, in terms of connections to other evangelicals in evangelical networks. I would say that at that point it was Rick Warren, hands down, at that stage. Yet... Through that period and on, Pat Robertson remained one of the go-to guys from the media, you know, when it came time to find out what are evangelicals thinking about this. And to me, that missed 
and help cover up like an entire generation of emerging evangelical leaders that, you know, folks who were following social media, were following evangelical organizations, we knew who people like Russell Moore and Kay Moore and others were, but you wouldn't have heard about them in newspapers at that point. Is this why when you wrote of Pat Robertson back in 2005, you referred to him as a fading evangelical alpha male? Yeah, and there's no question that he was an alpha male at one point, just as, you know, obviously Jerry Falwell was. But my point was by the time I wrote that article in 2005, and that was written for the ethics section of the Pointer Journalism Institute in St. Petersburg, Florida, and the headline on that, that piece, a piece which I think has a few things in it I would change today, but not many, and the headline on that was Excommunicating Pat Robertson. And what I meant by that is that I frankly thought the media were being lazy with their constant attention to Pat Robertson instead of doing a little bit of homework and finding out who the major players were, both in evangelical and Pentecostal Christianity and also in Latino and African-American Pentecostal and charismatic and evangelical life. They just were giving Pat Robertson a higher profile than he deserved at that time in evangelical slash Pentecostal history. I think part of the media's affinity for Pat Robertson is that he is, they believe, to be predictable in kind of a wacky way, but he also proves to be quite unpredictable in some of his views, Mm -hmm. doesn't he? Well, I mean, he was unpredictable whenever he said anything that they sort of, kind of, maybe would consider agreeing with. In other words, he was wise when he agreed with the American establishment. He was wacky when he disagreed with it. To me, I mean, he he, he evolved into kind of a figure out of the onion. I mean, in the sense, or now we would say the Babylon Bee. Sometimes when, when you were driving down the road and you heard, wait till you hear what Pat Robertson said, didn't you kind of go, oh my gosh, really? Or sometimes when you heard something attributed to him, I think a classic example would be that thing about him saying that maybe, well, maybe if a wife had Alzheimer's, maybe the husband could divorce her and kind of move on. Sometimes when you heard things like that, didn't you want to say, wait a minute, is this real or is this satire? And so to some degree, I think he was a walking, breathing, one-liner factory for the people who were looking for easy shots at the world of conservative Christianity. How would you then compare and contrast the New York Times, Washington Post, and the religion news service stories about Pat Robertson's retirement from the 700 Club? Well, let's let's start with the RNS piece by a veteran religion writer, uh, Mark Pinsky, someone who really... I know him well professionally, kind of a liberal Jewish guy, very articulate, but known nationally among evangelicals as someone who really understands evangelical culture, in part because of his years covering it in Orlando. Pinsky's piece got into a whole lot of things, and most importantly, I'll bet you if you walked up to the typical reporter today and asked for just some basic 
points about Pat Robertson's biography, where the man came from. I'll bet you they couldn't give you some of the facts that showed up in the Penske piece. I mean, for example, do you know where Pat Robertson did a law degree? I do not. He's a graduate of Yale Law School. Impressive. Okay. Do you know where he has a Master of Divinity degree? Now, here I'm assuming maybe a Southern Baptist seminary. New York Theological Seminary. Now, that's surprising. And his undergrad, if you dig all the way back into that, his undergrad is from a school in the South, kind of a logical place for him to go in light of his family history, which we'll get to in a second. He, but it's a very prestigious school. He's a graduate magna cum laude uh, from Washington and Lee University with a degree in history. And, and I, I think if you ask the typical reporter today, they wouldn't have gotten any of that. And do you know who Pat Robertson's father was? I do not. U.S. Senator. Pat Robertson grew up in Washington, the son of a U.S. Senator which probably means he didn't grow up in a house where people didn't know anything about politics or about the shape of American politics or kind of the style and flavor of how you get elected in a state like Virginia and stuff like that. That's another detail that I think is very influential. Looking at Pat Robertson is that he grew up in Washington. And he didn't just grow up the son of a bureaucrat or something. He grew up in the U.S. Senate, you know, and hanging, you know, with his father, who was a U.S. senator. That's another detail about his life. I didn't know until I did a little bit of background work. I also didn't know that Pat Robertson served in the Marines. All of which, if, if you say, now you don't say the name, and you say, okay, we're dealing with the son of a U.S. senator, He's a graduate of a prestigious school, magna cum laude. He's a Yale Law School graduate, and he also has a graduate degree in theology from New York Theological Seminary, and he served in the Marines. Isn't the picture that comes into your mind kind of an impressive one? Very. And also someone, man, that's not a bad resume to go into American public life. Or politics. It'll be interesting, not to wish ill on a 91-year-old man, but it will be interesting when he dies how many of those details even make it into the obituaries, because none of it fits the image that the public has been given of him, and frankly, in some cases, an image he courted and welcomed and kind of loved to play around with. I, you know, I, I don't think the public knows much about this man. They just have a certain image of him because it fit a certain media template. So Terry, let's talk about the New York Times piece on the retirement, which the headline reads, Pat Robertson ends long run as host of the 700 Club. Well, it's written by a religion writer and it uses a very good source, a very, very good source in John C. Green, who's now retired from University of Akron. I knew he first knew him when he taught at Furman University down in South Carolina, and he was one of the very first person to start doing hardcore research in polls 
and other sources of statistics about the lives of American evangelicals and what they thought politically. I thought there was a missed opportunity in it. Once again, the, the charismatic angle is really not mentioned at all. In fact, at one point it said, like, he, it, it kind of implied that when he selected an African-American co-host, Ben Kingslow, that, that that was some sort of like a token move or something like that. Well, it's easy to consider it that way if you don't know Pat Robertson's background in charismatic and Pentecostal life where you would have been surrounded by African-American Christians all the time, along with their music and their church and their emphasis on prophecy and their emphasis on, some would call it, health and wealth. So once again, it was a shorter piece than I expected, a pretty typical New York Times piece from the viewpoint of people sitting in a newsroom in New York. I really was kind of disappointed in it. I expected more because I expected the piece to be longer and to have more background material, but it didn't. What about the Washington Post? Well, I, would, I thought it was very innovative to actually go to an expert, a friend of mine, Mike Longano of Biola University out in greater L.A. I thought it was interesting to go to someone who kind of is a bit of a historian of mass media and its forms because I think it's possible to make a case that Pat Robertson – was a very historic figure, not because he was a televangelist, but because he wasn't, because he took another piece of popular mainstream American culture, the talk show, and built an entire Christian media empire around it. That's really quite innovative. I don't think you would have seen much. And of course, the fact that we get Jim and Tammy Baker out of that as well, but I think, once again, you got to look at the form of it and think of how unusual that was to think that you could have a Christian talk show like Larry King and bring on famous actors who were Christians and musicians and politicians and ask them questions about their books and do all kinds of things just like you were a normal TV guy, which, of course, he obviously wasn't. But he adapted that form. And the Washington Post piece did get that through the voice of Mike Longano. And once again, it was a shorter piece than I expected, but I, I thought it had some nuances that helped a lot. So discuss, if you would, his importance <laughs> as a pioneer in broadcasting. Well, basically what I just said is the, the crucial point for me. I'm sure others would have other wrinkles they could put in it. But I, I'm so big about technology shapes content and so much about the form of entertainment and the form of news. And don't forget his creation of the Christian Broadcasting Network having a news division in which he, he sought to put a conservative Christian spin, kind of anticipating the niche media era that we have now. He openly took the form of television news and said, we're going to do this, but with a Christian editorial slant. Yet when you turned it on, it looked like the other news shows. I think to some degree, CBN anticipated some of what we would later see with Fox. And once again, here he is adapting another form out of the mainstream and pulling it into a Christian marketplace. So talk shows and stuff that looks like news 
looks like a Christian approach to the news, and frankly, in his credit, openly stated that it was, I think those are two pretty big innovations. Your very first nationally syndicated <laughs> column was actually written about the man Pat Robertson. Tell us about that. Yeah, that's a boy. That's thirty, almost thirty-three years ago. That's nineteen eighty-eight, and of course, Pat Robertson is running for president, and he cruised through the Denver area, and I was struck by two things about his appearance. One was that his power and his connections were totally built on his charismatic, Pentecostal, evangelical networks and support from key pastors and everything else. But I was also struck by the fact that the people around him didn't want anybody talking about that because they knew it would make major Republican muckety-mucks uncomfortable. So some of the most interesting moments in a typical Pat Robertson's speech from there was he would get up and say pretty normal things politically, but when he got behind closed doors, of course I was not allowed behind those closed doors because I was a journalist, but I interviewed pastors that were in the meeting, and they said he made interesting comments that were clearly political, but he would voice them in biblical terms, you know, with like, this is where we're really going to have to be like Joshua on that one. And he'd make that comment and like maybe connect it to remarks about Israel. Or, you know, this this could be an Esther age, and we need to be looking for those people. You know, he might be the person, of course. We really need to look for those people who would be called out to play the role of Esther. And when you'd hear journalists interviewing pastors and stuff, they'd go, Esther? Joshua? Daniel? Revelation? What the heck is he talking about? which was exactly the point. Robertson's strength and his weakness in 88 was his ability to talk to an underserved, important segment of the American populace. And it turned out, though, that Republicans were in many ways just as uncomfortable with that as Democrats were. I do not recall how he did. I I remember him running for president, but I don't recall how he did. Was he in any way competitive, or was he just oh, one of those he, things the media like to pay attention to because it was unusual? Oh, no, he shocked people. I mean, he placed like third in some of the early primaries, and people got really nervous about that, and they also began to realize that whatever happened in Republican politics in the future, they were going to have to take that into account especially in the state of Iowa. I mean, it was like overnight Republican bigwigs suddenly realized, you know what? There's a lot of churches in Iowa, and a lot of those people show up to vote. And from then on out, the Iowa primary changed for Republicans. So, no, I think he did just well enough to scare the living daylights out of the Republican establishment in large part because of how they thought those voters, maybe this was an accurate thing to be afraid of, maybe they were afraid of how those voters would be perceived by the New York Times and National Public Radio and the other arbiters of what is in good taste in Washington. Which, once again, I want to, I want to return to the fact that Robertson knew Washington a lot. He knew a lot about Washington. 
And whether you want to praise him or condemn him or whatever, I think we can we can say that it was slightly courageous for him to go out with his guns firing and let his views be known, even though he had to know how the Republican establishment and Washington, D.C., gray suit people would take that. The 700 Club as a program began as a series of telethons to support Robertson's enterprises. It became something much more than that, much bigger and much broader than that. But he is the program's founder. We've all seen this kind of cult of personality evolve there in various mm-hmm. ways. Can the 700 Club survive its founder, Robertson's exit? Well, you can say that it already isn't what it used to be because, like I said, an entire new generation of charismatic and Pentecostal prophets, some of them even wilder than Robertson and some of them more mainstream, have come up in his wake. So to some degree, he's not even as relevant to that audience as he used to be. So I think it will survive because he has most of the economic and technical structures in place. I don't think it will be anywhere near as important as what it used to be, unless, of course, his son says some crazy things that the New York Times wants to put on page one. So let's talk about New York Times as kind of representative of the media's view of Pat Robertson to the New York Times. Who is Pat Robertson? A typical evangelical thinker and public leadership person. Pat Robertson was to them a normal evangelical, in large part because he fit a lot of their stereotypes of evangelicalism. And note that I'm using the word evangelical over and over. If they had actually known about Pentecostalism and charismatic life, they would have realized many of the things about him that were not normal and were not typical. But, you know, evangelical, Pentecostal, who cares? What's the difference? Even though Pentecostalism is the fastest growing form of religious faith on planet Earth. That's just not the sort of picky, factual material that some, let me repeat, some reporters would think were all that important. And the closer you got to a political desk, and the further you got away from the religion desk, the more likely you were to have that view of Pat Robertson, the view that made me write that article, Excommunicating Pat Robertson, to where you immediately think, oh, man, this is a big story. We need to know what do evangelicals think. Somebody watch the Pat Robertson show. Get us a soundbite. If you can do that equation, then you know who they think Pat Robertson is. With about a minute, is he a case study in how the media only view religion through the lens of politics and not theology? That's certainly a big part of Pat Robertson's fame and his media image. Maybe with this retirement from the 700 Club, we can't judge how he'll be viewed by elite media until we read the obituaries later and we find out more 
But at this point, I think the press is really interested in Pat Robertson. But in reality, I don't think they're interested in him at all in terms of what he actually did, who he actually was, and why he mattered. Terry Mattingly is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. He is author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, thanks. Glad to be here. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you next week. Thanks for listening to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. Crossroads is a production of Get Religion, part of the First Amendment projects at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. If you appreciate this podcast, please make a secure online tax-deductible donation at getreligion.org.